You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 59, Taking Fort Ticonderoga. In the weeks that followed Lexington and Concord, neither side seemed to know what to do next. Gage's regulars entrenched themselves in Boston. Worried that they would be unable to defend against an assault, they pulled their soldiers out of Charlestown. However, they warned the Patriot militia surrounding Boston that if militia attempted to occupy Charlestown, they would burn it down. So for the time being, Charlestown became a no-man's land between the two armies. Other than that, the two sides pretty much sat looking at each other across Boston Harbor waiting for the other side to do something. As word spread after Lexington and Concord, militia from neighboring colonies converged around Boston. Some rushed to the scene, like Israel Putnam, who literally walked away from plowing his field in Connecticut, heading straight to Boston on April 20th, the day after fighting. His son had to put away the plow and oxen that he had literally left standing in the field. Putnam had been an outspoken patriot leader, who had herded a flock of sheep to Boston the year earlier to feed the residents after the Boston Port Act had effectively ended all food imports by sea. Now, Putnam, who would serve as a major general, was there to fight. Others took a little longer to arrive. When word reached New Haven, Connecticut, a young apothecary named Benedict Arnold decided it was time for decisive action. A month earlier, the men of New Haven had formed a new militia company and elected Arnold as their captain. Now, Benedict Arnold is going to be a major player in the war, so we might as well introduce him now. In the spring of 1775, Arnold was a 34-year-old merchant, married, and with three children. He came from a prominent family. His great-grandfather, also named Benedict Arnold, had been the governor. Arnold's father had been a merchant but he was also an alcoholic, leading to some financial problems for the family. Arnold had started life attending the best schools in the colony, but his father's business failures forced him to leave school early and take an apprenticeship as an apothecary. At the outbreak of the French and Indian War, 14-year-old Arnold attempted to enlist as a drummer, but his mother prevented him. At age 16, he finally joined a relief force headed to relieve the British and militia at Fort William Henry, something I discussed way back in Episode 9. French and Indian forces had surrounded the fort, and before a relief force could arrive, the fort surrendered, resulting in the Indian massacre of the colonists in the fort. Upon hearing this news, Arnold's regiment returned home without seeing any combat. Arnold's mother died in 1759, and his father died two years later in 1761. In 1762, Arnold borrowed money from some cousins to start a pharmacy and bookstore in New Haven. His business prospered, and he soon repaid his loans. He even bought back the house his father had been forced to sell years earlier. A few years later, Arnold formed a partnership to buy three merchant vessels. Arnold personally traveled throughout the colonies, the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean, and Central America as a Yankee trader. Things seemed to be going well for him until the Stamp Act 
threatened to destroy his bookstore, and trade restrictions forced him to become a smuggler. Arnold joined the Sons of Liberty in Connecticut and actively supported the Patriot cause from the beginning. He also joined the local Masonic Lodge. Around the same time, he married Margaret Mansfield, the 17-year-old daughter of the sheriff, and began a family. Now, British restrictions on trade destroyed much of his business, and Arnold fell into debt. He still lived the comfortable life of a merchant trader, but had to be on the hustle for the next deal, and regularly had to worry about debt and financial troubles. By 1775, despite colonial trade embargoes and British trade restrictions, he was doing well financially and enjoyed a successful family and business. When word of fighting arrived in New Haven on April 21st, Captain Arnold assembled his company to march to Boston. The problem was the New Haven Town Council would not release any gunpowder. After several hours of bickering, Arnold had to threaten to attack the powerhouse and take the munitions by force before officials finally conceded and gave his company the powder they needed. The guy preventing Arnold from taking the gunpowder was named David Wooster, head of the Connecticut militia. I mention Wooster because soon he's going to become a general in the Continental Army and Arnold's superior. So on the first day of heading off to war, Arnold was already making enemies that would make his life difficult in the future. On the march to Boston, Arnold met up with Connecticut militia colonel Samuel Parsons, also a member of the Connecticut legislature. Now, Parsons was returning from Cambridge when he spoke with Arnold about the siege now underway. The two men discussed the fact that the provincial army was going to need cannons if they wanted any chance of taking Boston by force. Arnold told Parsons that there was a large number of cannon at Fort Ticonderoga in New York, which the British kept under only nominal guard. Arnold had traveled to Ticonderoga on multiple occasions as a merchant. He frequently visited the fort when heading to Montreal or Quebec for trade. Through his visits, he had become quite familiar with the fort, its assets, and its defenses. After their discussion, Parsons continued on his way to Hartford. There, he met Silas Dean, another legislator who had served in the First Continental Congress. On their own initiative, the two men decided to allocate 300 pounds sterling to finance an attack on Fort Ticonderoga. They named Captain Edward Mott to lead the expedition and recruited Heman Allen, the brother of Ethan Allen, to involve the Green Mountain Boys in the fight. As I discussed way back in episode 38, Allen was a well-respected militia leader living in what is today Vermont, only a few miles from Ticonderoga. Parsons and Dean ordered this force to take Fort Ticonderoga and acquire the cannon for the provincial army at Boston. Parsons apparently decided on this course after leaving Arnold, as he did not discuss it with him. So Arnold and a company of the Connecticut Guard continued their march on to Cambridge, Arnold witnessed the chaos and confusion there. Officers and men camped around the city with little purpose or direction. Within a few days, Arnold sought out Joseph Warren to discuss the idea of taking Fort Ticonderoga. Arnold told Warren about the cannon and how poorly defended they were. Now, Massachusetts had already received intelligence and a similar recommendation from John Brown, a member of the Massachusetts Committee of Correspondence 
who had visited Ticonderoga and Montreal a few months earlier. As part of his trip, he attempted to get Canadians to join the Patriot cause. Unknown to the men now discussing the capture of Ticonderoga, Brown was already headed toward the fort under Colonel James Easton of the Pittsfield, Massachusetts militia as part of Parsons' plan to take the fort. So unaware of that whole other planned attack, the Massachusetts Committee of Safety considered Arnold's proposal. Despite the state of war, Arnold's plan was still pretty controversial. It was one thing for colonists to defend themselves against a British column bent on attacking them and seizing their property. It was quite another to attack a distant British fort and seize British property. Some colonial leaders still hoped that events would play out much like the Stamp Act riots a decade earlier. The colonists would show a little violence to prove they were serious, and the British would back down and compromise. They were reluctant to do more than sit and wait to get a response from London before embarking on all-out war against their king. The other big issue was that Fort Ticonderoga was in New York. They would have to invade another colony that had not sent any support troops to the army surrounding Boston. Such an invasion might convince New York to support the Loyalist side and send troops against the New Englanders. After some debate, though, the majority accepted that, yes, they were at war and that they needed to take more decisive action. The Committee of Safety agreed to back Arnold's expedition to take Ticonderoga. On May 3rd, they appointed Arnold as a colonel in the Massachusetts militia and gave him 100 pounds sterling in hard currency, 200 pounds of gunpowder, and other ammunition, as well as 10 horses. They authorized Arnold to draw on their credit to pay for whatever he needed to complete his mission. They did not, however, give him any soldiers. They gave him a few officers and told them to recruit soldiers in western Massachusetts closer to the fort. So Arnold ditched his old Connecticut company and set out with several other newly appointed Massachusetts captains to raise new companies in western Massachusetts. As Arnold began recruitment, the locals told him that a planned attack was already underway. Several Connecticut companies under Captain Mott had recently passed through their town on their way up to link with Ethan Allen. By the time Arnold heard of this other group, Mott had already met up with Ethan Allen and the men were assembling local militia for the attack. On May 8th, the men had formed a committee of war, naming Allen as commander of the expedition, with Massachusetts militia colonel Easton as second-in-command, after the Green Mountain Boys refused to serve under anyone but Allen. Disturbed that he would be left out of the assault on Ticonderoga, Arnold ditched his captains, who were still trying to raise his army, and rushed to Castleton. On May 9th, he met up with Allen, who was still assembling his force about a day's march from the fort. Now, Arnold apparently tried to wave around his commission and demand that Allen turn over his men and serve under his command. The Green Mountain Boys, fiercely loyal to Allen, refused to serve under anyone but Allen, and certainly not some stranger who showed up with no men, no arms, no supplies, nor anything but a piece of paper and his own uniform. Eventually, the two reached a sort of compromise. Arnold recalled later that the two men would share command. Allen seemed to be more of the mind that, sure, you can come along with us and be there when we take the fort, but I'm running the show. 
The force assembled totaled between 250 and 400 officers and men. Accounts differ on the exact numbers. Most of them were the Green Mountain Boys with their allegiance to Allen. Some were, though, Connecticut and Massachusetts militia. The soldiers made their way to the fort, approaching it from the opposite side of Lake Champlain. They would cross the lake overnight and storm the fort before dawn. Unfortunately, the plan ran into problems at the outset. Allen had sent ahead an advance party to acquire the ships necessary to cross Lake Champlain. On their way, the men instead found a cache of alcohol and got drunk. When the main force arrived late in the evening of May 9th, there were no boats. Finally, they found a small craft that could ferry the men over the lake. But by then, it was getting dangerously close to dawn. A daylight crossing would likely be spotted by the fort, and they would lose the element of surprise. Allen and Arnold decided to take the fort with the 83 men who had come over in the first two trips. They had no time to wait for another round if they wanted to attack before daylight. Now you may recall from some earlier episodes that way back in 1759, the British, after several attempts, finally defeated the French at Ticonderoga. The French blew up their Fort Caroline, but because of the key location, the British built two new forts. One was Fort Ticonderoga, and another one a few miles to the north was Fort Crown Point. After the French ceded Canada, though, the lack of any enemy in the area made the forts unimportant. The region was home to the Iroquois, who remained close British allies, so these were now forts in the middle of friendly territory. When a fire destroyed Crown Point in 1773, the British did not bother to rebuild it, simply using Ticonderoga as the primary center of British authority in the region. At Ticonderoga, Captain Delaplace commanded a garrison of less than 50 officers and men. Like many unimportant garrisons, many of the men were on the invalid list, meaning they were not capable of full duty. They could be sick, old, or infirm. They were capable of light work, but not hard marching and fighting that an active-duty soldier might need to do. Also in the fort were several dozen women and children, families of the soldiers. The garrison had allowed the fort to fall into disrepair. Several walls had collapsed and had not been fixed. Although General Gage had sent warning a few weeks earlier to the commander to be on guard against a possible raid, it appears he had not taken much of any precautions. As Allen and Arnold approached the fort, they saw the main gates were closed. Without any artillery or scaling ladders, they had no easy way to enter. Fortunately, there was a smaller door built into the main gates, large enough for people, but not horses or wagons. They found the door unlocked and rushed inside. Now, as with many incidents, there are conflicting stories about exactly what happened. Part of the problem is that both Arnold and Allen tried to glorify their own roles in the matter. Allen wrote extensively four years later, when memory of details may have faded a little. Just inside the gate, they found a sentry who had been asleep. He awoke as the men entered and fired a shot point-blank at Arnold. Fortunately for Arnold, the shot misfired. In some accounts, the sentry dropped the gun and ran for the barracks. A second guard then appeared, whom Allen knocked down with his sword in a non-fatal blow. 
the attackers forced the sentry to take them to the officers' quarters as the rest of the raiding party moved into the fort. As they approached, a young Lieutenant Feltham, who had been at the fort for a little more than a week, heard them. Rushing out of his room, he banged on Captain Delaplace's room to alert him. The captain did not come out. Eventually, the lieutenant forced his way into the captain's room, only to find the man slowly dressing himself in no particular hurry. Feltham then rushed to confront the men moving up the stairs toward them. Just out of bed, he was still carrying his pants in his arms as he called out to demand by what authority they had entered the king's forts. In his recollections, Allen responded famously, by the authority of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress. Now this was probably made up, since at the time Congress had not even convened, and they were operating under the authority of the Connecticut Provincial Army. Other witnesses reported him simply responding, Come out of there, you goddamned old rat! Which actually sounds more like something Alan would say. So, after a few more minutes... Captain Delaplace exited his bedroom in full uniform and prepared to turn over his sword to the invaders without a fight. Other soldiers had gotten to the enlisted men before they could reach their guns, and they too surrendered without a fight. The Patriots took the fort in about ten minutes without a death on either side. The only injuries came to a British guard who Arnold had banged on the head and one American attacker suffered a minor bayonet wound from one of the sentries. The British had been caught completely by surprise and did not really put up any sort of defense. Eventually, the rest of the invasion force under Seth Warner made it across the lake and joined the rest of the attackers at Fort Ticonderoga. Arnold immediately set about dealing with the prisoners and securing the fort and its contents. Allen insisted that the prisoners be sent to Connecticut since he was operating under Connecticut authority. Arnold seems to have acceded to this demand without much argument. Allen also got Captain Mott, who had received the commission from Parsons in Connecticut to conduct the raid, to name Allen as the fort commander, thus giving Allen some authority against Arnold's Massachusetts commission. So while Allen had been named fort commander, his men seemed to have little interest in any efforts to organize the fort. They discovered Captain Delplace's personal stash of 90 gallons of rum and proceeded to get drunk for several days. They also began looting the fort for anything of value. Now Arnold tried to stop this, only to find the men pointing their guns at him and telling him to back down. Without getting any support from Commander Allen, Arnold had no choice but to do what he could by himself and try to ignore the drunken looters all around him. Allen's only contribution was to give Delaplace a receipt for his rum so that Connecticut officials could reimburse him for the loss of his personal property. And neither Allen nor Arnold wanted to leave the fort in control of the other, so neither would lead an attack on nearby Crown Point or Fort George. Allen dispatched a smaller contingent of men under Seth Warner to take Crown Point, which at this point was only defended by nine soldiers, and Fort George, which was defended by a garrison of two, yes, two men. Like the raid on Ticonderoga, Warner and his men caught both garrisons by surprise 
and they surrendered without any attempt to defend their forts. After a few days, the men that Arnold's captains had been recruiting in western Massachusetts finally began to arrive. So at this point, Arnold had a small command independent of Ethan Allen. At the same time, many of the Green Mountain Boys had decided they had accomplished their mission and began to return home. Allen's force would remain intact for a few weeks longer, but would continue to hemorrhage soldiers as militiamen only stuck around as long as they wanted. Still, the attack was a great success for the Patriots. The main purpose of this raid had been to secure artillery. Forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point combined housed about 200 cannons, only about half of which were in usable condition for the Patriot cause. So next week, we're going to look at Alan and Arnold's efforts to add to their accomplishment and the sad fight over claiming credit for it. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, and welcome to the American Revolution Podcast Book Review. Before we get to this week's review, I want to remind everyone that if you have any thoughts on the podcast or the revolution generally, feel free to email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. I'm always looking for feedback and want to make sure my podcast is moving in a direction that you, my listeners, want. You can also reach me on Twitter at amrevpodcast or through the American Revolution Podcast group on Facebook. Now, this week's episode had two main characters, Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen. So I'm going to recommend two books, one for each man, and both books by the same author. William Randall wrote Benedict Arnold, Patriot and Traitor in 1990, and Ethan Allen, His Life and Times in 1992. Both biographies cover the lives of the two men from their early upbringing through the war and beyond. For me, Arnold is one of the most fascinating characters of the war. For many, Washington included, he gained a reputation as being one of the best battlefield generals of the war. His eventual decision to betray his country and join the British Army stunned just about everyone. It would be like 
General Patton quitting the U.S. Army near the end of World War II and going to fight for Germany. It was simply unfathomable. And yet, that is exactly what Arnold did, for reasons I'll discuss in a future episode. Now, many don't know this, but Ethan Allen also came pretty close to treason himself in later years. After the war, when there was still debate in Congress over whether Vermont should remain part of New York, Allen held negotiations with the British to discuss making Vermont part of British Canada. But again, that's a discussion for a future episode. Both of these biographies are thorough and well-written. Both are well over 600 pages, with lots of that being and notes and sources. Randall has written a number of other biographies from the era as well, including books on Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and Hamilton. He also published a book about the War of 1812 last year. His books are well-researched, and his writing style engages the reader. Randall used to be a journalist before becoming a writer and a college professor later in life. If you want to learn more about the lives of these men, be sure to check out his books. You can find links to the Allen and Arnold biographies on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, thanks for joining us this week. Hope you'll be back next week for another episode of American Revolution Podcast.